Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to discuss the macro and asset allocation views of the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as those of our third-party asset manager partners. So joining us here in person in our UBS studios in New York City, uh, glad to have with me at the table today, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas, Jason Dreho, as well as joining us for his first appearance with us, Jason Thomas the head of global research and investment strategy at the Carlisle Group. So with that, Jason Thomas, Jason Dreho, it's great to be with you both. Uh, Thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients, and very much looking forward to hearing your current thinking. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here, Dan. Thank you, Jason, for joining us today. So there's a lot we want to get through over the next 30 minutes or so. So let's dive into it, maybe beginning big picture. Uh, Jason Thomas talking about the U.S. economy for a few moments. As we're making our way now through the second half of 2023, the economy continues to show great resiliency. Why do you think that's been the case? And what do you feel the likelihood is of the timing or the potential for a recession to occur at this point? Well, first, yes, I, I would certainly agree that that growth has been much stronger than I personally anticipated entering the year. Uh, the economy has weathered the 500 basis point rate shock quite well. I would say when you ask why that is, I, I think first and foremost, and, and perhaps I think this is underappreciated more broadly, it is the structure of the U.S. mortgage finance system. And so the U.S. system is, of course, uh, predicated on the 30-year fixed rate mortgage. These products essentially transfer all of the interest rate risk from borrowers, from households, onto onto lenders or, or the ultimate holder of the, the mortgage-backed securities that are collateralized by those mortgages. So at the end of the second quarter of 2023, the effective interest rate paid on the $13 trillion stock of U.S. household mortgages was only 3.6%. This is virtually the same as it was in the first quarter of 2021. So, so you have this massive increase in rates, but of course it has no impact on the purchasing power of these, you know, about 43% of households that are mortgage borrowers. I think that that's, that's very important. And, and this is something that distinguishes the U.S. from many other economies where you do have floating rate mortgages or mortgages that reset after a relatively short fixed period. And, and that immediately uh, has the effect of diminishing household cash flow and, and um, disposable income. The second issue, I think, is related to the size of the U.S. Uh, federal budget deficit. It looks as though the U.S. this fiscal year will run a deficit of about 6% of GDP. That's unusual because, of course, we're at full employment. In fact, we're through full employment. Uh, an economy with an unemployment rate of around 3.5%, you'd expect to see a budget that's near balance or perhaps a deficit of maybe 1% of GDP. So, so this difference between the, the historic cyclically adjusted budget deficit and where we are today is essentially worth about five percentage points of GDP. Uh, you, I wouldn't call that stimulus, but but certainly that that is a, a very large deficit, which is the equivalent of a large cash flow surplus of the private sector because of, of less tax, tax collections or, or larger transfer payments. So th- those are the two main drivers, I think, of, of the, um, the continued resilience of the economy. And, and I think that, w- you know, w- we'll see going forward. I, I do think uh, that when you look at the restarting um, student loan uh, interest payments, when you look at credit card utilization, just the, the outstanding credit card balances of roughly $1 trillion, now you know 21% rate applied to that, I think there are re- things that we need to be cautious about and, and keep our eye on. Uh, but again, I, I think we the, the lesson of the first half of the year shouldn't go unlearned, which is that perhaps this economy 
is more resilient than uh, many adver- observers had anticipated. Well, thank you, Jason. A lot there we'll dive into further. Jason Dreho, to get your take from the vantage point at the Chief Investment Office, how the U.S. economic picture, how has that evolved throughout the first half relative to expectations, and how do you see the economy evolving as we make our way through the next five months or so? Well, it's certainly done better than expectations at the start of the year with a consensus view. We'd have a recession probably at this point in time would have started. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we wrote a report titled, Why Hasn't There Been a Recession? <laughs> this is a pretty common question. That's the most common question we've gotten for the past year is like, Will we get a recession or not? And so we we're like, well, why haven't we had one? We went through and identified kind of you know ten factors, and instead of you know grouped them into you know one is that you know policy hasn't really been that restrictive. You, Jason, you mentioned like the fiscal policy, but even monetary policy, despite the hikes, you can kind of argue that monetary policy really hasn't become even now still not that restrictive, given the level of inflation. Uh, the household balance sheets in the private sector, by and large, is in pretty good shape, you know, by by a number of different metrics. So, be able to withstand the the, the higher rates uh, thus far. A lot of excess savings. This kind of goes back to the massive fiscal stimulus that took place, you know, back in 2020, 2021, even this year. Again, you know, the point about the fiscal drag hasn't been nearly as large with a six percent budget deficit. And then, kind of related to the point about the mortgages, and I want to follow up on that question or that comment is that if we look at the U.S. economy today versus 50 years ago. It's just a very different economy. Like when people worried about stagflation, this is the, not the 1970s economy. Like we're not really a manufacturing economy anymore. We are, I'd say, like a knowledge-based services economy, which by its nature tends to be less cyclical. Your manufacturing share of private sector output is, is down 50%. Uh, it's like from gone from about 20% to 10% roughly. You know, in the past 50 years, we're less energy intensive. So we tend to be less prone to these kind of normal economic cycle patterns than we were before. So I think that's something that's often sort of discounted. Like it's not the same economy. Uh, and as a result, like it's been a unique, you know, kind of late cycle economy back in January 2020. We had a pandemic overlaid. Uh, it's been very unusual for the past few years. Whatever plays out over a recession or whatever you want to call it, it's probably going to also be something that we haven't experienced in our careers before, which just makes it harder to assess. But one of the things that I'm kind of thinking about, it ties into the mortgage comment that you made, Jason, that... Yeah, higher rates haven't really impacted people because they locked in their mortgages up through you know 2021 at incredibly low rates. And given either people don't have a mortgage on their home or 70 or 80% are kind of locked in at 4% or less, it's going to take a long time for that average kind of financing rate to kind of go higher, which then kind of raises the question, well, how long would it take for monetary policy to actually have an impact? So have you kind of looked at that and thought like, well, what's – like how long will this take? And you know, given the excess savings that households might have, like – is it going to be another six months, a year, or even longer before higher rates really kind of start to impact the households that would kind of cause a drag in growth? Because this gets more into the debate about like, well, we haven't had a recession yet. We're still going to get one. It's just delayed, not avoided. So I guess you know, how do you think about it, you know, kind of where we are right now going forward? Yeah, yeah I, I think that when you think about the impact of rates and, and the cost of these higher finance costs, they can be borne by households. They can be borne borne by the corporate sector, borne by the public sector in terms of having to reduce deficits, actually maybe run some primary surpluses, and then also the, the external sector. What, what does this do to the exchange rate, of course, having upward pressure on the foreign exchange value of the dollar? So I would say that because households seem so insulated with 75% of their obligations fixed rate, and again, not just fixed rate, but extremely long fixed rate uh, borrowing, at least as it relates to housing, Uh, more of the adjustment is going to have to fall on the corporate sector. And I think that that means that the large segment of um, borrowers, uh, leverage borrowers, who had uh, capital structures that were designed for an era of zero interest rates, are probably going to have to think about refinancing into different capital structures. 
And I suspect that part of that will be defaults, certainly. But a lot of it is going to be, I think, a move towards what we refer to as transitional capital. Just the idea that there is going to be a surge in the use of mezzanine securities, preferred opportunistic financing, maybe some pick notes, but some portion of the capital structure that is going to have to be sw- – you're going to swap out interest-bearing liabilities with these now carrying very high cost, 10 to 12 percent in many cases, and replace that with somewhat higher cost of capital mezzanine securities, but securities that actually do not demand current interest or, or have interest payments that, that are very low. But I, I think that we see already uh, impact for the tech sector, for example. You had a lot of companies acquired very high valuations. Well, the more you pay for a company, the less operating cash it generates per unit of enterprise value, of course. So in many of those cases, they found that the as interest rates adjusted upward, uh, they didn't have as much operating income as they'd like. They had to reduce staffing. They had to cut back on spending somewhat. So, so you do see the effects of higher rates already evident there. And I think that that's going, going to trickle through more broadly. But uh, as long as the, the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage system exists, as long as there is not that external pressure or investor pressure, the bond vigilantes on the U.S. government to, to narrow its deficit, it does feel to me that, that more of the adjustment will be borne by the corporate sector uh, in the U.S. Than, than other sectors of the economy. So I want to follow up on that because when I think of like the, you know, businesses in general, large, big public companies, especially if they're investment grade, they also kind of termed out their debt at very low rates. That's probably not an issue. The high-yield market, a lot of companies – kind of termed out their debt and the sort of a wall of maturities doesn't really start to kick until like 24, even 25, but they have to start kind of planning for it. But it's a little bit of runway. I think to me, like one of the biggest impacts potentially is like in the small business sector, which can't borrow long-term, can't borrow at fixed rates. They're borrowing from times from banks uh, at floating rates. So they should kind of feel it sooner. Also, given like, you know, the banking stress, you would wonder like as the credit conditions being tightened. So when you see these different, like, different pockets, and there could be something else that I haven't covered. Where do you think it's you know, the pain would sort of reside, how soon would it kick in? And just, you know, this morning on, on the TV, I see like the bottom of the cry on like, you know, highest per, like bankruptcy rates or number of bankruptcies in 13 years. When I look at some of the bankruptcy levels, I'm not seeing those kind of statistics. So I sort of like, where is that? What am I missing in terms of like some of that stress? So where do you see it maybe in the, in the, in the business sector? Like, Yeah, I, I think that that stress is evident in, in pockets of the economy already. Um, you know, it's interesting when you mention bankruptcies. I think when you look at bankruptcy filings, and you look at uh, loan underwriting standards, the Fed survey, these, both of these series generally have very high correlative relationships with spreads. You know, as, as underwriting standards rise, as bankruptcy rise, spreads generally blow out. We see the opposite today. In fact, Q2 went very much in, in the opposite direction, where you had spread tightening, even as you had growing bankruptcies and, again, a, a tightening of underwriting standards. So this is unusual, and, and we'll see, uh, again, how, how it plays out. Perhaps there is... Uh, this sense that equity buffers are so large uh, that that you have to see some degree of equity dilution before you're going to see defaults or or you know some of these these other uh, adjustments and that that hasn't really occurred to date. But um, you know I, I do think that on the whole um, you have as as you mentioned terming out liabilities the fact that even 2024 the refinancing that that has occurred this year has substantially reduced 2024 maturities. So it really is not until you get to 2025 and beyond, uh, that, that you start to see this, this maturity wall. But I do think that that can lure us into a false sense of security. Defaults are low. Um, you know, they've backed up to maybe 1.7% on a trailing 12-month basis, but still relatively low. And, and maybe uh, because the maturities are further in time, we're, we're not so concerned about that. Um, defaults are generally 
a refinancing event. Can, can you roll over your liabilities or not? Um, and, and so I think as those dates approach, uh, as some of the companies that are perhaps not in the greatest shape uh, start to to see those maturities uh, around the corner, that we're going to start to see you know, some, some greater restructuring and, as I said, the ability to, to deploy in that, that mezzanine or opportunistic uh, capital um, part of the silo. So, you know, we get June CPI tomorrow. We could talk about the inflation trends, but kind of going back to this discussion about, like, the debt liabilities. Pre-pandemic, you know, we talk about high government debt levels. How are we going to get out of this? Well, maybe you just def- inflate your way out. I don't know if this is intentional, but, like, that's one of the byproducts. And I've seen even, like, de- data on nominal debt and nominal GDP on the corporate sector has actually come down a lot just because nominal GDP has been so high. And as inflation comes down, even the, for households, real incomes should start to rise. So it can have different conflicting aspects. On the corporate side, because your debts are kind of fixed, nominal, and if you're you know, high inflation, like you can almost maybe solve the problem in, in that sense. But I haven't really kind of dug into the details of how this is playing out. Is this something that – have you thought about it? Where do you see this inflation dynamic actually making the problems for companies and this debt problem better or actually maybe um, – or, or worse in some sense? Yeah, I, I think that – well, first, you're absolutely right. When, when you look at the market value of U.S. government debt, uh, it has collapsed relative to GDP they're, they're because of, you know, you have now uh, the the um, outstanding market value is about 89 cents per dollar of face value. So not only do you have the, the nominal GDP growing with, and, and reducing the debt to GDP ratio that way, if you actually just look at the, uh, the discounts to par, it, it's even larger than that. So if the, if the Fed gets inflation under control, and Treasury is able to to roll over or issue new debt at essentially 2019 interest rates. This will be something that uh, has has an enormous uh, positive impact uh, for for the Treasury. But the first step, of course, is, is getting inflation down to target. Um, but as it relates to the corporate sector, what what I think is interesting here is that if your product or service, uh, the the price of it is correlated with with broader price trends with CPI. This has been a huge benefit to you. You have inflated away your own debt, and and your your um, debt ratios look stronger as a consequence. The issue is when you think about uh, some of those businesses that are not cyclically sensitive, uh, particularly in medical technology, healthcare technology, data, digital, software, uh, other areas. These are very often disruptive companies, and people like them precisely because they are, again have they exhibit relatively low cyclical sensitivity. But part of that also is the pro- the price of those products and overwhelmingly services are actually not at all correlated with the broader price level. And so in many cases, those companies that have now had to pay much higher interest rates have not had the benefit on the other side. So, you know, traditional manufacturers, industrial companies, you know, that, that are more correlated with these, these broader price trends have been the beneficiaries. Some of, again, the, so the, in some sense, the more cyclically sensitive your business is, the more likely it is to have experienced pr- increases in prices that have uh, helped to uh, inflate away your debt burden. So they've been able to pass on their input costs you know, to the consumer, margins stay where they are, your debt comes down, but not every company's been able to kind of benefit from that dynamic. No, and, and again, I, I would just look at some what, – what I think is interesting is that many investors uh, rightly wanted to have what they thought of as low beta companies, companies that are just not going – they're going to be able to grow right through the business cycle when they were worried about the late – as you mentioned, late stage in 2020 and, and, and just thinking about, well, the recession is going to come soon. What, what kind of companies are I going to own? That makes a lot of sense, but when you have an inflation shock, as we had, those are precisely the companies that are not going to participate to the same extent in, in, with their uh, rising uh, price of their, their final sales. Just kind of final thing on inflation, then we get the June CPI. 
consensus uh, expectations, it's going to come down at least headline numbers quite a bit, and even on the whisper side of a kind of core coming down. And uh, you know, looking at a lot of in- leading indicators suggest inflation is coming down quite a, you know, potentially quite a bit, even in core inflation. But I think the market is a little bit maybe cautious on getting too ahead of itself. Although you could always say it's already pricing in that kind of a perfect landing for the economy. How do you think about it in terms of that inflation dynamic? Because it feels like if, if inflation goes right, the soft landing narrative really becomes a base case for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. If it stays stickier, then people expect the Fed has to keep hiking. Well, then that just – the recession is kind of becomes more of the you know back kind of front and center. So how are you kind of thinking about those two and where do you – if it's just two camps, like where would you sort of lie yourself? Well, uh, you know, I, I would say that, that first um, the, the comps do get tougher uh, as the year unfolds. So having getting down to to lower inflation rates on a year over year basis is what we should all expect. But but then realize as September arrives and then moving to the end of the year, that then you actually need to see really very clear signs of low sequential inflation rates. So I think that that market being prepared for that to to not be wrong footed to see you know good June, Ju- July, August data and then realize that that actually on a on a year over year basis things haven't quite improved as much as expected. Um, you know, and, and secondly, I, I would just say that I think much depends on the, the, the pivot of the Fed. I mean, in, in Q2, you had a central bank that effectively eased policy. You, they hiked once in, in May, 25 basis points, but that was offset uh, by a substantial decline in forward interest rates as people started to price in aggressive monetary easing in the second half of the year in, into 2024. And of course, the Fed balance sheet expanded at one point, you know, it was up by $400 billion, but but still finished the quarter uh, slightly larger th- than it was uh, entering it. And so I, I think that that those those uh, expectations, how, how large of a pivot is this going to be away from concerns about regional bank issues to to finally solving uh, this inflation problem. So I guess my answer is that it it what I'm really interested in is to see how the Fed, FOMC members, policymakers more broadly interpret these data, which in some ways I I think are are baked in. Again, we are going to get lower year over year inflation I think for for at least the next two months. So the the point of like the next few months being lower just from year over year effects, it's going to come down. People can start to say inflation is quote unquote solved. You know, the question is like, what does the Fed do? And, that, you know, a scenario that we've talked about is like, what well, could it be a head fake? Meaning like, okay, it looks like it's good. And all of a sudden you're, you're, you know, life is good. And all of a sudden inflation starts ramming up and you're like, oh, bad news. You know, the Fed has to hike more. How they, you know, respond to this, that that's the key question. Because, you know, I would almost worry at this point in time, either not so much that the Fed has done enough hiking, it's going to cause a recession, but they're so concerned about not doing enough that, and they're probably lost confidence in their ability to forecast inflation mm-hmm. just based on the estimates that, um, you know, they'll be very data dependent, which means they're backward looking. Uh, and even though the trends are kind of going lower, they may end up saying, well, we're not quite sure. And they could also think it could be a head fake and realize, no, it was actually, this is real. Like this is coming down. And that's the hard thing to calibrate. Like, what's the Fed's kind of reaction function to all this? And they may not do it themselves. Absolutely. No, um, and I think we that's been revealed over the past few months that, you know, the, the disagreement about a March hike, right? You know, I think that meeting was the 22nd after the SVB failure of, of March 9th. And there was a lot of people who at that point wanted to to take a break and, and wait and let's see that the data and credit availability and all those sorts of things. And so it, it's become clear first that there's lots of disagreement on the FOMC. And, and I think it's become clear that, that there's not a, a clear reaction function. Again, the, the market got so far ahead of the Fed with expecting rate cuts to commence as soon as July. Uh, now here we are with almost certainly going to see a rate hike in July. And, and I'm... Uh, quite certain there's going to be more surprises for us ahead. All right. Now, 
So switching from the economics to more the investing side, you know, start of the year consensus was recession, like worst first half, better second half. And investors by and large kind of positioned more defensively. Kind of caught them off guard when the S&P was up 16% in the first half of this year. Now it seems like there's a greater divergence of opinions. Uh, you know, I think I even saw like a Bloomberg article that is like the range of expectations among strategists is as wide as it's been in, in a while. So how are you then thinking about then investing, especially kind of from the private markets perspective in this environment where like the paths can go in different ways? So, you know, maybe just overall sense of direction for the markets, but then maybe thinking about from from a private markets perspective, what does it mean in terms of opportunities, but also how to think about maybe the kind of our portfolio perspective? Yeah, well, first, I would just say that it's hard not to think that the market has gotten somewhat ahead of itself. And again, I think that's the confluence of stronger data than expected, which makes sense. We saw that, too. So I've I've no... uh, quibbles with that, but in the conjunction of a central bank that effectively eased policy in, in the second quarter, again, with lower forward rates, with balance sheet expansion. So, so again, quite co- contrary to what we saw the pri- prior two quarters, uh, which was uh, really meaningful tightening uh, from, a, from a low base. So, so I, again, I, there, there's, a, there's some skepticism about, about the rebound, I would just say, from, from my own vantage point uh, at the outset. But secondly, as it relates to private markets, um, you know, the, the the way that the interest rate increase is manifested in private markets has really been in illiquidity. And what that means is just a, a substantial decline in M&A volumes. And you have a very wide bid-ask spread. And much of the bid-ask spread is really just attributable to the increase in financing costs. That a buyer of an asset today uh, cannot pay, cannot meet the seller's price without accepting uh, a substantial decline in their own expected return or underwritten return on the asset. And that's, you know, when you have finance costs that go from, say, 6.5% as they were to enter 2022 up to 10 to 12% today, all in uh, blended finance costs, that means that that cash yield to equity, the, the leftover operating earnings after paying creditors, has dropped from an average of about 11% entering 22 to about 4% today. So the only way to make that up, of course, is through faster growth in the operating earnings of the companies. Some companies and some private equity managers can, can generate those, that earnings growth. But of course, the, the universe of companies that can grow at 16 to 20% earnings growth annualized to meet those uh, return expectations is, is relatively small compared to you know, the companies at, at the end of 2021 that could plausibly grow at 9 or 10% per year to, to hit those, those earnings uh, expectations. So you know, as a result... I think that once there becomes uh, greater acceptance of the level of interest rates remaining higher for longer, and that's not a, a just you know whether the Fed has to hike again or two times, but just that as you suggested, the Fed's going to be I think fairly cautious about easing. You know, it's going to be a rate cut, and then let's just see the data. Is there any sign of inflation reaccelerating? Uh, and and that means that if you get up to five and a quarter, five and a half percent uh, on your your cash yields, that they could still be near five percent twelve months from now, or or even you know heading into the end of twenty twenty four, and that's not something that as yet is broadly accepted, and I think that that expectation of lower rates, lower finance costs means that many would be sellers of assets today think, well, let's just wait this out. If we have to wait another six months or so to get our price, that's no problem. Let's do that. Once it becomes clear that the financing conditions are not going to be materially different then than they are today, there's going to be, I think, a willingness to accept somewhat lower uh, sales prices. And I think that 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 will reignite the market. And again, I I think this is also an area where when you think about uh, from, from a 
lender's perspective, um, I advise companies to to swap uh, still today their floating rate liabilities into fixed, at least for a three-year period, again, because of the expectation that rates could remain higher for somewhat longer. But the uh, the, the opposite is true for um, the, the buyers or, or investors in securities, which is to say to be somewhat overweight floating rate loans uh, as opposed to, to fixed rate bonds precisely because those floating rates could actually remain near these levels for, for longer than, than is contemplated in the forward rates embedded uh, in those bonds. So just picking up on the point about, you know, kind of M&A activities has died down because of higher rates. People think about the valuations. I want to wait for rates to come down to sell. At some point, yeah, you probably realize like, oh, this is the new reality, at least for an extended period of time. And I can't sit indefinitely. I do think that's a little bit of a plan what's going on in the housing market that people like, you know, there's the golden handcuffs argument. Like I got this three and a half percent mortgage. I can't leave my place ever. Uh, and at some point, like, the reality kicks in. Like you, know, you have to move for a job or a life situation. So, so it's kind of slowly unthaw the markets. I think we're seeing a little bit of the bad, that kind of activity today. So, from that perspective, do you would you think it's a six month, twelve month horizon when you know if, if rates, you know, the Fed might still have the Fed funds rate at five percent, twelve months from now. That's a very plausible scenario. Two years from now, that seems unlikely. But I think the idea is that rates are going to be higher going forward than they were the past decade, at least maybe a full percentage point higher. So at what point do you think that kind of starts to, that reality of a new regime kind of kicks in and the market starts to kind of open up for for, for uh, you know acquisitions, even like kind of secondaries in, them in the private equity space, things like that? Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's by year end is my expectation. Uh, and, and I think it's first having some degree of comfort that the last rate hike has occurred. And then secondly, it is just understanding that this is not going to be 2020 or 2008-9 or, or even the 2001-2002 period where this, the central bank responded to weakness extremely aggressively. Uh, th- this is going to be a rate-cutting cycle, in my view, that is much more measured. Uh, take the temperature after every rate cut. Try to assess what effect this is actually having on on pricing decisions, pricing power, the the labor markets, and and so I think that by year end, this this sense of rates uh, remaining longer on a cycle, a rate remaining higher for longer on a cyclical basis, but also just a, a terminal rate that that starts to be something over time where people start to revise that up to maybe three and a half percent rather than you know two and a half percent is currently contemplated. So I think this is a process, and and I don't think there's going to be a a date where all of this is just fully incorporated in, into uh, every market participant's thinking. But, but I do think by the year end that, that there's going to be broader uh, begrudging acceptance that we are in a new rate regime. I think of, um, I think it was like 2014, when it was around then when like Larry Summers came out and gave a speech, at the, I think with the IMF, like talking about secular stagnation. And it felt like there was a bit of a shift or people were kind of thinking, well, we'll get back to normal, we'll get back to normal. And you realize like, no, this is actually a fundamentally different environment. And very quickly, the kind of rates kind of fell. Not quickly, but like, it was sort of like, it takes a while, takes a while, then all of a sudden, very quickly, everyone sort of accepts that's the thesis. And it might be something along these lines where like, there's, you know, we're going to go lower, we're going to go lower. And like, all of a sudden, you realize, no, this is the new reality going forward. Yeah. So it it might take six months, 12 months, but then all of a sudden, it probably kind of happens where like, everyone's kind of talking about it in that way. Um, just on the, the point about um, kind of, you know, uh, you know, operatives in private markets. Like one of the things that we like in the in the private equity space is secondaries because they, mm-hmm. there is some of this sort of dislocation kind of going on. Uh, maybe a little bit of lack of price discovery, and so I think for for some investors, it kind of creates an opportunity. Like if you think you know you have a certain view, this is an opportunity to maybe buy an asset that is not distressed, but 
interesting you kind of valued or as people kind of want to get out for for various reasons are you seeing that also like you know the kind of a pickup in terms of interest in sort of secondaries as as a consequence of this or is that just a kind of a general trend going no on? A- absolutely um the secondary markets are really interesting because there's not that much capital that's raised to intermediate these markets so so that that makes it interesting in and of itself because you just have it's 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 relatively short funded compared to the scale of the opportunity but when you think about the, the this illiquidity that I mentioned in private markets, wh- what you've seen over the last eighteen months is uh, capital calls that substantially exceed distributions. So net to LP distributions finished last year uh, about a negative one hundred and fifty billion, and it looks like it may be negative two hundred billion when you total up venture growth infrastructure buyout through June thirty of this year. So that means that many uh, institutions find themselves uh, where they're overallocated or they're, they, they're expecting cash flow from distributions to fund incoming capital calls. Now those distributions have not materialized, so they're, they're worried about future capital calls. So they are uh, looking to rebalance their portfolios by through secondary offerings to, to sell and, and sell down some of their exposure. Again, I think being on the other side of those trades is, is going to be very attractive um, because, of course, there is going to be some discount to, to net asset value. Uh, and, and I think that, that, that being a, a liquidity provider in that space is going to, to pay handsomely. Uh, also, you do see a growth in secondary, which is GP-led secondaries, which is just referred to very often as continuation funds. But instead of selling a company or portfolio of companies to a strategic buyer, you know, in corporate M&A or going to an IPO or, or finding a, a, a secondary and find another private equity sponsor to, to buy those assets. It's setting up, a, again, a continuation fund with, with new investors. Some of the investors in, in the existing fund can roll over. They don't have to. Maybe they want the liquidity. But, but it's a, a way for um, the sponsor to effectively uh, effectuate an exit. Uh, get liquidity to LPs who who would like it, uh, but then actually continue to own a company that they think has a, a number of bright years ahead of it. Interesting. You know, I could kind of go into this for a while, but I know I think we down. We've probably used up um, a good chunk of our time, so maybe I would might pass it back to you. Well, that means we have to have a follow up conversation at mm-hmm. some point. A lot we can follow up on here and dive into. Though Jason Thomas and Jason Dreho, thank you both again for spending some time with our advisors, our clients on how should I be positioned. Thanks again for having me. Thank you. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.